Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Welcome everyone to the first uh, GAI seminar for 2013. Thanks very much for coming along. Um, to open our series, uh, we have two presenters today. We have Dr. Vlado Gavoda, who is a research fellow with the Griffith Asia Institute, and Jordan Gretz, who's a doctoral candidate with the Centre for Social Responsibility in Mining, Sustainable and Sustainable Minerals Institute at UQ. And today, uh, uh, Vlado and Jordan are going to look at the post-Fukushima energy debate in Japan and talk about the current indicators of the debate and Japan's energy... Oh, sorry, talk, talk about where the debate and Japan's current energy policy are headed. So, I'll hand over to you. Thank you, Mike. Thank you. Um, so today, uh, Vlad and I will both be um, taking turns in talking. I'm going to talk about the paper context and aims, our methodology, and then I'll hand over to um, Vlad to talk about the research problem, the policy-making process in Japan around um, energy policy and nuclear policy um, specifically. Vladimir will also explain our argument to you all, and then I'll talk about the evolution of our thought and narrative and the reason why we've, or how we've come to um, the argument um, that we have, and then Vladimir will um, present our conclusions to you, and then we'll take questions. You can deal with the questions. Um, so, the context for our papers. So, we're presenting this um, in San Francisco at the International Studies Association Conference um, in early April. Um, and our intention is to then submit it uh, to the Pacific Review. Um, so, we've written the paper, um, we've pretty much written the paper, um, and with the intention of submitting it to the Pacific Review. Um, and it's pretty much complete, but we're very happy to take your questions and comments on board and those of the discussants and the attendees at the conference as well. Um, Vlado's forthcoming book looks at similar themes to this and a lot of the work um, in the paper uh, draws on um, his work in the book as well. We have a long-standing, both of us have a long-standing interest in Japan and questions around energy security, energy policy, and the nuclear fuel cycle more broadly. My PhD at UQ is looking at um, the social and business risks from uranium mining. Um, so this paper is looking at more end-use um, challenges around the nuclear fuel cycle. Um, and our aim in the paper is to identify the key institutional and organisational drivers and constraints to change or future change in Japan's nuclear energy policy based on uh, the policy making process um, and uh, the politics that um, really impedes change in the regulatory system governing um, nuclear energy in Japan. So, um, methodology for this, we've done a desktop review um, and critical analysis of literature on en energy security, Japanese nuclear politics, government business relations in Japan, and the power of vested interests, um, and regulatory capture as well. Um, and the materials that we've looked at include government publications, corporate reports, 
non-government and industry organisation publications, journal articles, books, media reports, um, and so on. And Vlado, this year in January, went to Japan and conducted about a dozen interviews with um, Japanese government officials, um, leading people in industry, and Japanese and Western scholars. Um, so a lot of our insights come from those interviews, and I'll come back to touch on on that when I talk about the evolution of our, our argument as well. So I hand over now to Vladimir to talk about the research problem. All right. Thank you, Jordan. Um, well, thank you, everyone, for coming. Uh, it's great to see uh, big numbers in the first seminar. Um, so I'll, I'll start by uh, just giving a bit of a kind of background uh, information and what, what kind of questions... Uh, do we aim to answer with this uh, this particular paper and this uh, uh, project? Uh, so, first of all, to give a bit of context, um, a Fukushima disaster has been a, a massive shock in terms of not just in terms of, of uh, energy security, uh, but also for the Japanese economy, the environment, and and also the environment. Uh, sorry, the political and, and regulatory system. Uh, in terms of uh, um, just some kind of tangible, put some tangibles. Uh, um, the, the shock to the, to, the, to the energy system has been that uh, essentially 25 to 30 percent of uh, electric power, or about 12 to 13 percent of overall energy supply, has been removed from the system in the aftermath of the Fukushima disaster. We can see on this graph how uh, nuclear power. Power uh, made up about yeah 13 to 14 percent of Japan's overall energy supply, between 25 and 30 percent of Japan's electricity supply prior to the disaster. Of course, a big uptake of nuclear power following the two oil crises in the 1970s and Japan's drive to diversify away from oil at a time. Um, another effect as well we can see this is a effect on on energy security but also on, on the economy more broadly, which will be obvious from the following slide, uh, the cost of uh, fossil fuel imports for Japan has increased dramatically since 2010, with LNG uh, imports, uh, the cost of energy, uh, LNG imports increasing from 3.5 trillion yen in 2010 to 6 trillion yen in 2012. Uh, petroleum imports have increased as well uh, significantly, with coal imports as well increasing uh, in cost, somewhat, slightly only. Uh, but just on the economy, uh, some of you may be aware that uh, Japan in 2011 experienced the first trade deficit since 1980. Uh, in 2012, this was followed by an even, even bigger trade deficit. So 2011 was about two and a half trillion yen. 2012 was about six trillion almost 7 trillion yen. At the same time, if you look at the incremental, uh, uh, extra incremental cost of uh, fossil fuel imports compared to the base year of 2010, you can see that, uh, that the extra cost of fossil fuel imports are partly, or almost you could say, uh, uh, single-handedly to blame for Japan's uh, uh, growing trade deficit. So, so, so the impact of the of the Fukushima disaster of a nuclear nuclear shutdown has been enormous, not just for energy security of Japan because of increasing reliance on uh, fossil fuels uh, from uh, uh, from overseas, but also in terms of the economy. And also to add to that, 
also in terms of the environment. Uh, Japan's carbon dioxide emissions, for instance, increased by over uh, 2.1% in 2011, uh, and with most nuclear reactors uh, offline in 2012, uh, emissions grew by 5.5% uh, as well in 2012. This comes against the bank a backdrop of a drop in overall energy demand. So Japan is consuming less energy, but that energy is more carbon intensive. For instance, uh, Institute of Energy Economics of Japan uh, is a forecast that had Japan's nuclear reactors been recommissioned in 2012 and restarted, uh, CO2 emissions would have fallen by 5.3%. And another research shows that before Fukushima, nuclear power accounted for a 14% annual reduction in Japan's uh, carbon dioxide emissions. Some research from 2011. Uh, the increased emissions essentially make it virtually impossible for Japan to reach its Kyoto Protocol target of reducing uh, carbon dioxide emissions by 25% uh, of 1990 levels by 2020. And in fact, Japanese leaders have been frank in acknowledging uh, this reality. Now, the, the questions then, then come up, such as the, the ones that we've listed on, the, on this slide. First and foremost, what role is there for nuclear power in Japan's energy future? We can remember maybe from a year or so ago there was debate in Japan over you know, what, whether, whether nuclear power should be phased out, uh, should make up 15% of uh, future electricity supply or 20, 20 to 25%. <coughs> So, so that question remains, uh, and we will kind of talk about where we think Japan will go in the future in, in this paper uh, and later in the presentation. Moreover, given that Fukushima has been such a, uh, a, a shock to, to, to the system, it is also important to kind of engage, uh, and this paper does that, uh, to engage that debate on, on uh, uh, whether crises lead to change and to kind of, uh, essentially, uh, according to uh, our, our reading of the literature, an established view in the literature of policy change is that the literature divides history into normal periods and critical junct junctures during which a major change is possible. Lengthy periods of, um, of that, um, nor those normal periods uh, can be punctured periodically by intense crises such as the Fukushima, leading to institutional uh, and or other policy change. And crises or these uh, exogenous shocks are often cited as explanations for such change, as their existence simply highlights a failing within existing policies or systems due to their implication in or inability to rectify the emergent situation. Uh, moreover, crises expose decision makers to criticism and demands for more effective action, with the end result being policy change. They also unleash short bouts of intense ideational contestation in which agents struggle to provide compelling and convincing diagnosis uh, of the pathologies that afflict the old regime or policy paradigm and the reforms appropriate to the re resolution of the crisis. So arguably the Fukushima disaster is one such exogenous shock or critical juncture after which major policy change uh, is likely according to some in the literature. However, uh, related thinking as well goes that uh, exogenous crises such as the Fukushima do not result necessarily in policy change. Constituents such as policy and political entrepreneurs generate and institutionalize emergent policy ideas. Exclusive reliance on exogenous shocks to account for policy change 
is arguably overly simplistic and fails to explain the absence of change in the wake of a crisis. And the introduction of new ideas into the policy environment and their transformation into policy often takes place because of the activities of networks of policy entrepreneurs with political entrepreneurs at their head. Therefore, during a time of crisis, it is important to consider both exogenous explanations, such as the actual exogenous shock, the Fukushima disaster, and the inside or the endogenous explanations, explanations such as the institutional sources of policy change in terms of idea generation and idea advocacy to explain the potential for policy change. Walsh, uh, for, ex for example, argues that policy change is most likely to occur when an alternative policy idea can explain past failures and secure the support of powerful constituents. In order to in order for policy entrepreneurs uh, to challenge existing arrangements, a crisis and policy failure must be identified and widely perceived. Agents, policy and political agents, must diagnose and impose on others their notion of a crisis before collective action can be taken to resolve the resultant uncertainty. So agents in this context shape the terms of political debate, they frame issues, define problems and influence agendas. They ultimately initiate a debate concerning uh, the existing and predominant ideational orthodoxy. So, so, so in this context, we, we ask whether the Fukushima crisis can lead to change in Japan's energy policy and in the existing uh, regulatory governance, uh, nuclear regulatory governance. That the crisis in itself may not lead to change, but there need to be actors and agents in there involved who are uh, going to push for this change. So we, we, we examine whether this indeed is the case. And as well, is, is more substantial change in Japan's structures of power possible? And we'll examine those predominant structures of power in the next few slides. Also, another important question is what change is desirable? Okay, the policy-making process in Japan, this is a, this is a sim, uh, uh, simplification here, it's pretty complex. Particularly if you look at uh, yeah, the, the, the nuclear uh, policy-making process. Overall, the Japanese policy-making process is based on a slow, mid-level bureaucratic group consensus process which emphasizes continuity priority of maximizing Japanese economic interests. That whole literature from uh, Thomas Johnson to, to Richard Samuels and so on from the 80s kind of, uh, and then that uh, varieties of capitalism literature which defines Japan as, as one particular type variant of capitalism, kind of that we draw, back, we draw in the paper on, on all that literature to, to kind of analyze the policy making process. Um, multiple actors and agencies are involved, um, uh, first and foremost, the government and the bureaucracy. Secondly, uh, nuclear uh, industry uh, and the electric utilities. I just want to emphasize the importance of the electric power uh, utilities here. There are ten of them in Japan. Each of them has a monopoly over a particular regional area. And they have been particularly important uh, uh, and very strong organization in influencing uh, uh, LDP in the past and, uh, and Japan's energy policy. They're organized as well through an uh, organization called Denjiren, which is uh, a federation of Japanese electric power companies. Uh, also, other business associations and leaders, such as the Keidanren, or Japan's uh, business federation, Another important player is the actual, the actual politicians in the Liberal Democratic Party. 
Again, media as well, very important in the debate and in the policy-making process. And finally, civil society organizations and citizen associations, particularly important in the past uh, with uh, the NIMBY activism against siting of nuclear power plants and siting of a whole host of uh, energy facilities and pipelines and, and so on and so forth. In terms of uh, the governmental agencies, METI, historically METI until 2001, is the, the, the key policy-making hub uh, with uh, the Agency of Natural Resources and Environment hosted within METI and being largely responsible for drafting energy policy. <coughs> In terms of Japan's uh, nuclear regulation and nuclear uh, energy policy, nuclear policy making, Japan Atomic Energy Commission, Nuclear Safety Commission got dissolved and uh, Nuclear Regulatory Authority was established in 2012. We'll talk a bit more about it later. Again, Ministry of Environment, Ministry of Finance and, and, a several, and several other bodies as well have a say in the, in the, in the whole energy, making, energy policy making process with particular importance of Ministry of Finance due to uh, budget allocation. Historically, historically uh, there has been a lot of collusion uh, between industry and regulators in Japan uh, reinforced by the practices of uh, Amakudari and Amagari and we will talk about those again in a bit more detail uh, uh, later. Suffice to say at this stage that the, uh, that, uh, that the old uh, regulator before nuclear regulatory authority was established was, essentially, was not independent and was part of METI. So just, just to tell you that, you know, that lack of independence of the regulator. And, and in terms of, so that, that is basically the policy-making process, but what, what were some of the major developments in, uh, in the debate and in the policy uh, since, since Fukushima? We've had uh, the Democratic Party of Japan in power uh, during and after, in, the, in, the, in the immediate aftermath of the Fukushima disaster, and, and, and DPJ were essentially quiet on future energy policy. They, they, they did not want to commit to a particular, so, particular path. And, and only, it was only around uh, the time of... It was only around uh, September, actually, last year, that, that uh, former Prime Minister Noda uh, actually uh, hinted at a nuclear face-out by 2030. He uh, backflipped essentially a day or two later after a massive amount of pressure was put on him by uh, by Kane Dunran, the, uh, the business Japan Business Federation, and a number of important uh, industry executives, saying that nuclear phase-out is irresponsible as it would uh, lead to an increasing movement of Japanese businesses offshore and. Uh, higher electricity prices and so on and so forth. Consequently, although the public opinion favored a nuclear face-out uh, in deliberations about future policy uh, in, in, in public consultation during late 2011 and early 2012, uh, the government didn't actually, DPJ government didn't commit to that, that course of action. Lower House election took place in December 2012 and many expected uh, the future of nuclear power to play an important role. Uh, in the pre-election campaign. However, this did not materialize, and other issues were other issues such as uh, Japan's economic situation, social, po social security policy, and so on, 
uh, were more important in the campaign, and actually the nuclear issue was pushed aside. And surprisingly, um, or maybe not surprisingly, the LDP uh, got back to power, and the LDP had a platform of actually being against the nuclear phase-out. So, uh, you know, in, in some way we can see that LDP election has been a tacit endorsement by... Uh, by the Japanese electorate of uh, the requirement to re of the, the actual need to return back to nuclear power sometime in the future. Also in September 2012, the new uh, nuclear safety uh, regulator has been established, the NRA, independent now of government and industry on paper. We'll talk about, uh, about that a bit more uh, in more detail later. Now our argument. First and foremost, um, first and foremost uh, we'll start uh, by saying that vested interests centered around that triad or the iron triangle of METI, METI, uh, so the government, the bureaucrats in the government, in METI in particular, powerful industry interests uh, such as the, the electric utilities and the K-Dunran and the, and the politicians, particularly in LDP, have been instrumental in shaping uh, Japan's energy and nuclear policy uh, in the past. They have controlled uh, the, the, the path of, of, the, of, of Japan's energy policy historically and remain in charge still today. These vested interests as well, some, sometimes in the literature, have been referred to as, as the nuclear village. And um, Japan's nuclear re regulatory agency in the past, the predecessor to the NRA, uh, the Nuclear uh, Safety uh, Commission, uh, and the Nuclear uh, Industry uh, Safety uh, Agency as well, NISA, have been captured uh, by industry through the practices of Amakudari and Amagari. Japan's nuclear regulatory institutions um, have been uh, subject to, to a high degree of regulatory capture in the past. So according to Lafont and Tirol, <coughs> capture or interest group theory emphasizes the role of interest groups in the formation of public policy. In another interpretation, regulatory capture is the process through which regulated, regulated monopolies end up manipulating the state agencies that are supposed to control them. In the case of Japan, institutional weaknesses including a lack of bureaucratic turnover and a failure to incorporate new ideas and ways of thinking, a lack of innovation and dynamism, and a lack of transparency and accountability to both the fourth estate and the public left the nuclear regulatory agencies open to capture. The relationships between the bureaucracy governing nuclear power and electric utilities in particular were and still are reinforced by the practices of Amakudari and Amagari. Amakudari, or descent from heaven, is a practice that sees retiring senior bureaucrats secure advantageous positions in the private or public sector. In contrast, Amagari, or uh, ascent to heaven, sees industry members successfully gain employment in the regulatory agencies. So we call this kind of revolving door policy in, in, in the West, essentially. So Amakudari and Amagari are an omnipresent phenomenon in the electric power sector with all major listed utilities having at least one former career bureaucrat sitting on the board of the nuclear power industry. For example, four former senior officials from nuclear regulatory agencies served as vice presidents of TEPCO between 1959 and 2010. Moreover, since 2000, 
electric utilities have supplied at least 100 employees uh, to the Nuclear Safety Commission and other nuclear safety regulatory agencies. TEPCO, which has sent 32 workers to the bureaucracy, had reserved seats at several positions. In addition, 68 former industry ministry officials with extensive nuclear industry oversight roles have transitioned to post-retirement positions as executive board members or advisors at 12 of the major power companies over five decades. Even as of, say, in May 2011, there were 13 former ministry officials employed at TEPCO, with a further 10 employed at other utilities. In the most recent case, uh, Toru Ishida became a senior advisor at TEPCO in January 2011, uh, less than six months after retiring as the head of the Agency of Natural Resources and Environment at METI. In a further demonstration of the power and reach of the vested interests in determining policy and regulating the nuclear industry, Associated Press examined the business and institutional ties of 95 employees at the Nuclear Industry Safety Authority and other nuclear regulators in Japan. 26 employees in the sample were found to be affiliated either with the industry or with taxpayer-funded organizations that promote nuclear power the media agency also identified 24 employees who previously had held positions at the three regulatory agencies, one-third of whom had connections to industry or pro-nuclear groups. Perhaps uh, no other person uh, illustrates the movement and impact of, of uh, Amakudari and Amagari better than Tokyo Kano. Uh, Kano joined TEPCO in 1957, became a leader in its, uh, in, in, uh, in its nuclear unit, in 1989, and in 1998 was elected to Japan's upper house as one of the LDP's hand-picked members of the K Dunran. In the Diet, uh, Kano participated in redrafting the policy that enshrined nuclear power as Japan's best hope for an energy-secure future. After two six-year terms, he returned to TEPCO as an advisor in July 2010. In fact, we argue also that, that these, this regulatory capture and these uh, long-established practices show no signs of moderating. In September 2012, Nuclear uh, Industry Safety Authority and the Nuclear Safety Commission were disbanded and they were replaced by the Nuclear Regulatory Agency. The, uh, according to Kingston, uh, the Nuclear Reg Regulatory Agency is more a reorganization than a significant reform. As 460 of its 480 staff were transferred from the previous regulators. However, unlike its pre uh, predecessors, arguably the NRA is an independent regulatory agency as it is modeled uh, on the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission. The NRA faces a number of challenges owing to its staff inheritance and changing the culture of how the regulator oversights the industry will be particularly important. The new NRA chairman is uh, Shunichi Tanaka, a former vice chairman of the uh, Japan, Japan Atomic Energy Commission. Tanaka also served as president uh, of the Atomic Energy Society, an academic association that advocates nuclear energy. Because of his background, uh, many observers have expressed concerns about whether uh, he will, Tanaka will play a more robust monitoring role and whether regulatory capture will persist. It also remains to be seen whether the NRA will nurture a safety culture in the industry. 
Just to mention, uh, the NRA's first task is to make a pronouncement on the recommissioning of nuclear power reactors. It also intends to develop regulations for plant system designs and severe accident management procedures by July 2013. So once it's published the reports on the safety of reactors by mid-year, then based on those reports it's able to restart reactors. Another development that shows that Japan in fact uh, uh, that regulatory capture is likely to remain and Japan is likely to return simply to business as usual is that an example of the government deciding to allow actually post Fukushima to allow the completion of three new nuclear reactor projects at Oma, Shimane and Higashidori that had been suspended following Fukushima. In another sign that Japan may be returning to business as usual pattern of industry regulator engagement, more than 20 secret meetings involving officials from the Cabinet Office, METI, and the Federation of Electric Power Companies of Japan, among other participants, were held after, since Fukushima and into, well into 2012. So there's still that secrecy and lack of transparency and accountability uh, remains. So, so, so our argument is that due to that power of vested interest, it is unlikely that Japan will radically alter its path. Indeed, uh, we argue that nuclear power will return, albeit most likely to reduce percentage of electricity generation due to realities on the ground. Most likely, not all of the reactors will, allow to, will be restarted because some, it's been proven, sit on the, on the fault line. Currently, only two reactors are, are online at OI, just in, in Kansai, uh, out of 54. So, so we actually expect that in uh, late this year, in 2014, quite a number of reactors will come back online. Well, crisis um, is often viewed as a mechanism for, of change, as we previously explained, but based on the example of uh, nuclear uh, politics in Japan, it looks unlikely that the crisis will affect long-term and necessary change uh, in the political and regulatory system oversighting the nuclear industry. We will also talk a bit more about it in the conclusion, but I also just want to mention in this context uh, the power of uh, uh, and, and, and the government's the government's manipulation actually of the media in, in pushing for its agenda. In the past, and again following the Fukushima disaster, the Japanese government has utilized exclusive reporters' clubs, also referred to as uh, Kisha Kurabu, uh, in order to ensure that media coverage reflects government policy. Historically, the government, uh, following major uh, minor nuclear accidents in Japan, such as the Tokaimura in 1999, and also uh, the overseas disasters in Chernobyl and Three Mile Island, the governments managed to use the media to manipulate the public opinion to return to the kind of general ambivalence regarding nuclear power in Japan. The, consist the continued existence of the <coughs> discriminatory system of uh, these reporter clubs which restricts access to information to club members is a key factor in Japan's, uh, uh, for instance, media freedom ranking uh, dropping from the 22nd to 53rd since the Fukushima disaster. So uh, the Reporters Without Borders published uh, World Press Freedom Index and in uh, 2013 uh, they argued that Japan has been negatively affected by lack of transparency and the denial of access to information 
on subjects both directly and indirectly related to Fukushima. Japan's ranking plummeted because of censorship of nuclear industry coverage, the ban imposed by authorities on independent coverage of any topic related directly or indirectly to the accident at, the, at, at Fukushima, and the government's failure to reform the reporters, exclusive reporters club system. Moreover, several freelance journalists who complained that public debate was being stifled after Fukushima were subjected to censorship, police intimidation, and judicial harassment, according to Reporters Without Borders. Uh, I have a, another example as well um, of, of that kind of power of those vested interests to influence policy debate. I, when I spoke to an academic at Kyoto University, he was telling me that they, they, they wanted to organize a kind of a debate regarding the future of, of nuclear power in Japan following the disaster at, at Kyoto University. And they, they wanted to invite anti-nuclear activists uh, to this debate, but, but eventually they were not allowed to go ahead because the, the university would not allow this because of those anti-nuclear activists. They just would not allow that kind of debate to take place. So, so that kind of power, that, that vested interest structure really permeates uh, beyond simply the government and policy apparatus into other aspects of society. Jordan. Okay. So um, the argument that Vlados presented wasn't ne necessarily going to be our initial argument. We initially had um, written and had had um, quite significant discussions about arguing for a, a path of compromise where we were going to say that a viable solution for Japan is to ha reduce the target from around 30% of um, electricity generation by nuclear to about 15%. That would um, appease um, population concern. It reflected realities on the ground that some reactors are located on fault lines and, and there are economic um, impediments, financial impediments to some of the reactors um, able to be restarted. As Vlado mentioned, there are also um, environmental reasons, such as situation or location on fault lines. So we thought a 15% target represented a, the most viable course of action. But based on our, um, our observance of the political machinations following Fukushima and Vlado's interviews on the ground, we've come to this con conclusion that, it, that there's more to it than that. That the likely result is probably going to be around 15 to um, 20, 25% of um, electricity generation, but for um, the, the reasons that Blood has ex explained, the vested interests, the regulatory capture, the power of the nuclear village, and the, the entrenchment of those interests and their intractability and the lack of policy and political entrepreneurs who desire and are able to affect change. So just some, Vlado might want to say some more about this, but some of the interesting things that emerged from Vlado's interviews uh, was the revelation from one informant that the media cannot hold government to account, although this, as noted there, this was disputed by other um, other informants. Another informant argued that one way to solve this problem is to nationalise nuclear power, um, to nationalise the nuclear industry. Others highlighted the problems inherent in renewables 
and the increased dependence on fossil fuels. So that was, is another reason there for us to come to the conclusion that nuclear will continue to play. And, 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 most, and most respondents, uh, regardless of where they were based, uh, uh, although some of them personally opposed to nuclear power, acknowledged that it's the reality that Japan simply has no choice. Yeah, uh, and I was just going to talk about that. Renewables in Japan, is, it's difficult. Uh, as most of you would be aware, it's um, a pretty... Uh, the geography doesn't allow um, a lot of, and the climate doesn't allow a lot of uptake of renewables. Um, there is um, investigation of um, significant offshore wind farms, but they have problems. Um, photovoltaic, there are problems associated with that, as a number of the informants um, mentioned to Vlado. The geothermal... There's an issue with the, yeah, the tourism industry and uh, onsen industry and so on. Uh, the, the fact is Japan is 70% of Japan is designated as forest land and you can't build any energy facilities, electricity, anything on that. Uh, another to add, uh, uh, those vested interests, particularly the elect electric monopolies, have been historically opposed to renewable energy. And consequently Japan la has lagged in that technology uh, as opposed to Germany, Spain or China. Um, and, and just an associated um, point, Japan uh, hasn't been very good at importing technologies as well. It's mm -hmm. the, um, developed its own domestic nuclear industry, um, even though technology and insight can um, be imported. It, it's tried to go it alone. So uh, other reasons for our coming to um, the conclusion that we have... Um, not having nuclear power represents a six trillion um, yen per annum cost to the economy. Um, importantly, as another informant said, um, the nuclear plant says they are um, currently not operating. They represent stranded assets that are a drain on the resources of the ele um, electric, electric monopolies, yeah. um, and they want to get them restarted. And they will do. And this is why you've got uh, their finances are, are in red uh, over the past two years as a result of the nuclear shutdown. With the exception of Okinawa Electric Power Company, that doesn't have any nuclear reactors, the only one. Uh, the finances of the electric utilities uh, have been in, in red, and they've been struggling, uh, struggling very much. Uh, this is another another table that shows essentially uh, uh, the same thing. You can see the reliance on nuclear power to the left. And an increase in cost of fuels to the right uh, for each particular uh, electric utility. Uh, so, so to conclude, um, just a few points and to reiterate some of them. First of all, the power and influence of the nuclear village is showing no signs of abating. Amakudari and Amagari uh, are insidious and uh, ubiquitous practices. Uh, and TEPCO has historically been uh, a major beneficiary of these practices. Um, some have argued that regulatory deficiencies were central even to the Fukushima disaster. For example, uh, um, despite Japan's regulatory documents listing uh, the Fukushima Daiichi plant as one of the country's most trouble-prone reactors during the previous decade, the former regulator permitted its continued operation and in February 2011 approved Unit 1 for a 10-year extension. Moreover, after TEPCO was found to have fabricated repair reports 
in 2002, the maximum fine that companies could receive for fraudulent reporting was raised to 100 million yen. However, TEPCO did not incur any sanctions as a result of its behavior. Uh, instead, a company sacked four top executives, and three of these executives subsequently gained employment at companies with close ties to the utility com- to the utility company. The big business uh, has been vocal about its desire to see the return of nuclear power. Uh, Abe's government and the LDP apparatus is supportive of nuclear power. The new regu- regulator has essentially the same staff, and and uh, and to finish. Uh, and to return to that question we posed, whether uh, uh, the Fukushima crisis has, can result in perhaps, you know, a structural change, that third-level change in Japan, while the disaster has been a clear example of an exogenous shock, there is simply a lack of agency to institute change in the regulation of the nuclear power industry in Japan. As has been demonstrated, the bureaucracy remains beholden to the nuclear village. Uh, Amakudari and Amagari continue to see officials transition from positions of power within the bureaucracy to nuclear companies and vice versa. And, and there, is, uh, and there are uh, uh, numerous policy entrepreneurs who seek, uh, uh, who simply uh, uh, want to preserve the status quo. Uh, the vested interests remain entrenched, perhaps even more so with the return of, uh, to power of the LDP. And, and, and as a consequence, uh, we don't think uh, that there, there exists a significant agency for uh, major change in Japan, in Japan's regu- nuclear uh, regulation, and in Japan's uh, energy policy-making structures. And uh, Japan is most likely to re- simply return to uh, uh, business's usual pattern of, of a nuclear industry uh, regulatory oversight. So thank you for your attention, and uh, yeah, we look forward to any For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.